And so tonight we come to the New Testament Gospel of Luke. A couple of weeks ago, I think it was during the Super Bowl, I saw an advertisement for a cellular telephone company that was offering that if you would um, you come over from your present provider to them, that they would uh, cut your bill in half. And that was the promise that was made by, um, by that particular company. And I think that anyone who uh, is unhappy with the amount of money that they pay for their cellular service would, um, you know, their interest would be perked by that. And so the next day I made a call to this particular company and I asked them for the fine print. And I said, well, what's the deal with that? I mean, to cut your bill in half, that's quite a significant amount of money. If you knew how big my bill was, uh, what's the deal? And the reply that came from the other end of the line was, well, bring a copy of your bill into our retail outlet and we'll discuss the details with you. And I tried to gain a little bit more information from them, uh, seeking to avoid that trip to the cellular retail outlet. And as we were just about to hang up the phone, I said, can I just ask you one more question? And he said, sure, go ahead. And I said, if I come there, am I going to be frustrated? And he said, yes. <laughs> and, and I said, thanks. And I hung up the phone and it saved me a trip from going uh, to the outlet. But one thing that we're all familiar with is that whole cellular world of bigger and better or faster or newer. There's always an offer for an upgrade. And as we come into the New Testament tonight, there are many Christians, many people, that view the New Testament scriptures as simply just an upgrade from that which was in the old. That because the old was inferior or antiquated, or that it didn't jive with evolving cultures, that God came up with a plan B. And now he says that anyone who wants to come to me in these ages, well, you can just latch on to the new plan. And you can have the upgrade, so to speak. Well, that's just not the way it works. The New Testament is not simply just an upgrade from the Old Testament or an improvement. The New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's the forthcoming of all that was known by God and prepared by God from the beginning. And thus it becomes the full revelation of what always was in the Old but was incomplete, uh, and thus, because it was incomplete, it was covered and concealed. The whole Bible is intended to give to us a picture of the person of Jesus Christ. The New Testament is where the person of Christ becomes visible, and thus it makes sense of the Old Testament that was covered by the shadows. It's been well said by some that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and that the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And thus, as we moved through various segments of the New Te- or Old Testament in weeks past, what we saw is that we saw New Testament truth that was covered in shadows and pictures. And thus, tonight, as we come into the New Testament, we see the revelation of that truth in the person of Christ being revealed. Now, the New Testament basically breaks down into four parts. The first part, of course, is the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's very simply the unveiling of the person, the incarnation, if you would, and the ministry of Jesus Christ given to us there. The second part would be the book of Acts. 
It's the only historical record of the New Testament early church. It's what took place in the years following the resurrection of Jesus Christ right after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the earth. And so the book of Acts, the historical segment of the New Testament. The third section would be the epistles or the letters that were written by various apostles, Peter, Paul, James, Jude. You know, these letters that were written to give instruction or teaching so that we would understand with perfect clarity the truths and the revelations of God that are revealed throughout the Bible, the epistles. And then finally, the fourth segment is called the Apocalypse or the Revelation. And that would just be the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And in many ways, the book of Revelation serves as a glossary, just like in any other textbook that you would read if you wanted to look up the terms or find the answers to untie certain things that are still mysterious, the answers are found in the back of the book, in the book of Revelation. That's a study for a total uh, other time, and other segment. But tonight we begin um, the Gospels. We look at the Gospel of Luke. And though we're starting in Luke and not Matthew, because the Gospels really are one record divided into four, we start from the very beginning. Now I know the question that many people have is, why are there four Gospels? Why not just one gospel with everything kind of put together in one harmonious record? Why is there four, four authors, four writers that repeat many of the same stories? Now, I know that there's going to be a lot of reasons to that, but just to give you two. First of all, because there are different viewpoints. We, each of us, interpret things based upon our personality and different aspects that make us what we are. We could both, me and you, look at the same event and it could affect us in totally different ways. I might be unaffected completely by something that happens, whereas if you see the same thing, it changes your whole life forever. And so when we take the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the things that they chose to write and the way that they set them forth, they were impacted in a particular way and the Holy Spirit used them them to record it that way because that way that they saw it would be important for some people. And so because there's different perspectives, God used four authors to bring depth and completion to the record that we have. A complete look. Another reason is because that there are different audiences that were intended by the writers. The Gospel of Matthew was written with the Jewish mind in view. Matthew wrote primarily to the Jews. And thus, when you read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll come upon the phrase frequently, this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was written in the Scriptures. You'll see that over and over again. Because Matthew is presenting Jesus as the Messiah, the promised Savior from the promises of the Old Testament. And he's writing to a Jewish audience. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark's audience was primarily Roman. He was writing with the Roman in mind, and the Roman mind was very different from the Hebrew mind. They were much like we are in our society today, very fast-paced, very fact-oriented, not really interested in the details, and thus Mark's gospel is very concise, it's very fast-moving. And he presents Jesus in much a different way than Matthew does. Matthew presents him as the lion, the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. Mark presents Jesus as a servant, one who came to serve humanity. And he emphasizes the servanthood of Jesus, one who came among us to serve. 
Luke's audience, different from the first two. He presents Jesus as the Son of Man, and his audience is primarily the skeptic and the seeker. And thus he seeks to give a very detailed, very methodical account seeking to seek or seeking to prove the truth and the factuality of the things that have been set forth. And he presents Jesus primarily in his humanity, not necessarily messianic like Matthew, not as the servant like Mark, but his favorite term to use describing Jesus is the son of man making him uh, relatable to us that he came in that way. And so Luke's audience, the seeker, the skeptic. And then finally, John's gospel was written to the world or to the lost. John, having a completely different perspective than all of the other three writers, and he presents Jesus as the Son of God. And he gives to us a totally different perspective, vastly different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, of Jesus and who he was and what it was that he came to do. And thus, all of that to say is that it pleased God to give to us through four gospels the picture of Jesus that we might have a complete understanding of the Son of God and who he was. And so thus we come uh, to Luke's gospel. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all called, and this is free, you can put this in your notes if you want, the synoptic gospels. And what that simply means is that they are very similar in nature. John's gospel is vastly different, as I said, and it was written much later, probably 20 years after the gospel of Luke was written, did John write his. But there's a lot of similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. However, there are also very unique aspects to Luke's gospel from all of the others. There are many things in the gospels that we find only in the gospel of Luke. There are 18 parables that Jesus gives that can only be found in Luke. They're not in Matthew, Mark, or John. The, 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 uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, the story of the ten lepers who were healed and only one of them came back to give thanks, the lost sheep and the lost coin, only given by uh, Luke. Also, the story of the prodigal son, that story that resonates with so many of us, only given to us by Luke. The, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection of Jesus, only given to us in the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke giving to us details of things that are left out largely uh, in, in other ways. Also, a distinction of Luke from all the others is that Luke um, greatly represents the age of Pentecost. And that is that Luke makes more of an emphasis or puts more of an emphasis on the ministry of the Holy Spirit than any of the other Gospel writers. Luke will not, in his writing, separate the Son and the Spirit. And everything that Jesus does, Luke makes it a point to emphasize that it was done through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and that holy thing that will be born of you will be called the Son of the Highest. The Holy Spirit's work in the Incarnation. Then, the next thing is the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus, and he's baptized in the Holy Spirit. Then he's led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Then he returns in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. And he begins to serve the Lord in the Spirit. And he, through the Spirit, offers himself. And Luke constantly emphasizing the work of the Holy Spirit. Because seeking to give to us an example that we would not take one step in this world claiming the name of the Son without the aid and power of the Holy Spirit with us. And thus Luke represents the age of Pentecost. Luke is also known for being a gospel for the outcasts. 
Luke's gospel, above any of the others, shows Jesus giving honor to Gentiles and to the outcasts, Samaritans, lepers, tax collectors, the poor, the weak, and the crippled. It seems as though it was part of his agenda to show that Jesus came as the Savior of all men, not just the Savior of Israel. It's also worthy of mention that 45 times in the Gospel of Luke, he makes mention of or gives reference to the interactions of Jesus and women. Probably the greatest book in the Bible that elevates God's appreciation for the person of a woman who in that culture and in that society was greatly looked down upon. And thus Luke presents Jesus as the Savior of all of mankind. And so let's read the first four verses um, and just begin our study in the text tonight. It says in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they, speaking of the apostles, delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that you might know the certainty of those things wherein you have been instructed. The first thing that we see right here in Luke's introduction as he begins his writings, we see first of all the author, the audience, and the agenda. First of all, the author. The author, of course, we know it's the gospel according to Luke. However, the only autobiographical sketch that we get of Luke throughout the whole book is the word me that we see in verse 3. When he says that it seemed good unto me to do as others have sought to do. That's the only mention of himself within the book. And the only reason that we know that Luke even is the author of the gospel of Luke is because of the B volume, or the second half of the volume that's given to us, that's known as the book of Acts. That begins again by Luke writing and saying, The former treatise have I written, most excellent the opposite of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And then he adds to that record as he goes through the book of Acts. And it's only in following the journeys of Paul in the latter chapters of Acts that you can deduce that Luke is the author. And so... Almost mysteriously, but yet it's settled upon Luke to be the author of this book. Now, everything that we know about the person Luke who wrote the book comes from the epistles of Paul. It may be just a little bit from the book of Acts as we follow uh, Luke traveling with Paul a little bit. Two times in Paul's epistles, he calls Luke the beloved physician. And so we know that Luke was a doctor in his day. He was a companion of Paul, one of his closest colleagues. He traveled with him during his second and third missionary journeys. He stayed with him for a brief while while he was in prison in Caesarea. And then Luke traveled with Paul when he was taken to Rome at the end of the record that we have uh, of Paul's ministry. And we know that because, you know, the pronouns in the book of Acts change. It goes from they went to we went. Luke showing that he joined Paul at these various different times. We know that Luke was highly educated. The Gospel of Luke is written in the most classical form of Greek that exists. It's the most beautiful language that any of the Bible is written in. It's just absolutely perfect. 
He even takes some of the sloppy Greek that Mark employs in his writing, and he corrects it. He fixes it up. He's, he was absolutely brilliant, um, this man Luke. His details are precise. He uses words and language that are only found here, and he's very careful, very exact, and very intentional in the things that he sets forward. Another interesting thing about Luke is that he was most likely a Gentile, which is very interesting. In the book of Colossians, when Paul is talking about his companions and those that traveled with him, he makes a separate list of all of those that were Jewish from those that were Gentiles. And Luke is listed among those that are the Gentiles. And that's an interesting thing to think about. And here's why. Because what that means is that most of the New Testament was written by a Gentile. Because if you take Luke, which is the longest gospel, and you couple it with Acts, which then is the second longest book in the New Testament, then you have more words that are ascribed to this man Luke than all of the other writers of the New Testament put together. That's interesting to think about, isn't it? That something that originated in Israel and that was primarily to the Jew, the Jew first and then also to the Gentile, that God put more testimony from a Gentile than he did from a Jew. And we see that emphasized in Luke's writing. He was heavily um, purposed to make sure that his audience knew that God came not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. And so there's Luke, he's our author. Now, who's the audience? Luke addresses in his introduction here a man by the name of Theophilus. He addresses him as most excellent Theophilus. In Bible days, there were primarily two types of doctors or physicians. One was doctors that were owned. Most doctors, in fact, were owned by rich men. You would have your own personal physician. It wasn't like today where you'd have a family practice and you would be a part of a network of doctors and people would kind of come to you uh, and you would have an office in a central location. No, if you were a rich person, then you would hire your own servant physician that would be a part of your household that would take care of the needs that you had. And so some suppose that Theophilus was a very rich man who owned Luke at one point. And that both Luke and Theophilus got saved probably through the ministry of Paul. And through that conversion experience, they forged a friendship that then caused Theophilus to commission Luke to go forth and to investigate the things concerning the faith and to return word unto him again. That's one of the theories behind Luke's correspondence with Theophilus in this thing, that he was a physician owned by Theophilus. The other type of doctor that existed in that day, they were ship doctors. Because of the prevalence of travel via ship in those days, and because of the necessity, because people would get sick on those voyages, many of the ships would have doctors that would travel on board. And and thus, when people would get ill or catch fevers or whatever it was, then the doctor would be there to help them out. And so some suppose that Luke was a ship doctor on one of the, um, you know, trips that Paul was on and that uh, in the whole thing, he was hired by Theophilus then to, to do this whole thing. Now, Luke may have been one or the other of those or maybe both at a time. When you read Acts 27 and you see Luke's knowledge of the sea, it's very interesting and it fits. You could say, well, maybe he was a ship doctor. Well, either way, he's writing to this man Theophilus. Now, others have suggested that Theophilus was not actually a real person at all. The name Theophilus actually means God lover. 
Theos is God, and Phylos is from, you know, the root word of phileo, which is lover. Love or lover. It's where we get Philadelphia or the city of brotherly love. And that Theophilus is basically just a name that's given to anyone who loves God. Now, I don't know about that. That may or may not be true. But here's what I do know. Is that all of us are hopefully God lovers. And God recorded Luke's message in the word for us. And thus, the audience is us. Whether it be just Theophilus who got these words, but God intended by the hand of Luke to put these things in the word of God for us. What was Luke's agenda? Why is it that he wrote? He tells us in those first four verses that his purpose was to give an orderly account. The idea is an orderly and clear record of what Jesus came to do. Now, it isn't necessarily meant to be absolutely comprehensive. There are a lot of things that Luke left out. There's things in the Gospel of John that Luke doesn't record. There's a whole section of Jesus' early ministry that isn't recorded by Luke at all. Jesus went back and forth from the Galilee region to it, to the Judean region and back to Galilee. There was a whole segment of things that happened before Luke's record of Jesus' ministry actually began. So his intent is not to cover every little detail. And it's not even necessarily to be absolutely chronological and make sure that everything is exactly in the order that it happened, though it's pretty good, Luke's record. But more so when he says that he's seeking to give an orderly approach or an orderly presentation of it, he wants it to be clear and he wants it to be accurate. And so he he sets forth this thing. Now, three aspects of Luke's agenda that he sought, three criteria by which Luke evaluated what it was that he was going to include in the gospel. Number one, and he says it in the introduction there, he says he wants to present the things that are most surely believed by us. And that is he wanted to set forth a group of things that are absolute essentials to the Christian belief. He wasn't seeking to record fables or things that were legendary or things that were just Interesting, he wanted to set forth things that these are the absolute pillars and tenets of the Christian faith without any compromise at all in those things. No traditions, no ideas, but only absolutes, the pillars. And thus he writes, the virgin birth. He talks about Jesus as the Son of God. He brings up the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit. The fact that Jesus did miraculous things. He testifies to the resurrection of the dead. And he talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And what he does is he then calls those things the things that are most surely believed by us. Meaning that the things that are recorded in this gospel are non-negotiables when it comes to what we believe as Christian people. I have a real problem when I read about some of the founding fathers, especially Thomas Jefferson. And we're told in the testimony of Thomas Jefferson that he took a New Testament and he created his own version of it. He believed in all of the words that Jesus spoke, but he didn't believe in any of the miracles that Jesus did. And thus he took his New Testament and he scratched out and tore out all of the segments where it testified of any miracle that Jesus did. And then he took the Sermon on the Mount and the sayings of Jesus and he said, this is the highest moral code that's ever been written and the most beautiful thing that's ever been given to man. But in taking out all of those things that Jesus did and the testimony of the miracles that he did and of the virgin birth and of the resurrection and of the second coming, he separated himself from the pillars and tenets of what we believe as Christians. 
We do not have the right to take the parts of the Bible that we like and separate them from the parts of the Bible that we don't like or don't understand and then call ourselves Christians. And thus Luke, who is educated, and Luke, who was a physician, and Luke, who had a scientific mind, testifies to the fact that the miracles were a part of who Jesus was. That he really did walk on water. That he really did multiply loaves and fishes. That he really was born from a woman who had never had relations with a man. That he really did die and rose again. And that he really is returning to this earth. And what he calls all of that is the things that are most surely believed by us. That is that these are the things that we stand upon and hold to be the tenets of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as presented in the word of God. The second thing that he made as his criteria for what he would record in his gospel are things that are also absolutely confirmed. That is, things that were confirmed absolutely. He says there in verse 3, jeez, he says in verse 2, he says, Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. What he does here is that he separates himself from the original 12, and even from those that walked with Jesus while he was on the earth. He confesses that he was not one of those that walked with Jesus while Jesus had his ministry. But he says that he sought to get eyewitness accounts from them and to hear the testimony of those that walked with Jesus so that the things that he recorded could be absolutely provable and substantiated by the people that saw them themselves. It's interesting that the word eyewitnesses that Luke uses there, it's a Greek word that is translated into English as autopsy, autopsos or something like that. Not that you care what the uh, Greek sounds like, but it's where we get the English word autopsy. And the idea you understand behind an autopsy is a thorough examination to find out the facts of a death. And what he's saying is that I sought the witness of those that were so intimately involved in the affairs of the things that I'm writing about that there's absolutely no doubt that what they testify to is true. And then the second word that he uses is servants, which is the word that we would uh, translate under rowers. And that would be the people in the ship that were right involved getting their hands into what was going on right there. Well, here's what that means for you and me. It means that when Luke writes about what took place with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the things leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ, that he got that testimony directly from Mary herself. Because she's the only one that would have been alive and around at that time to testify of those things. And so in order for Luke to give a first-hand account of that, he would have to talk to Mary herself. And so what that means is that everything that's written in chapters 1 and 2 of the Gospel of John is, is, is the testimony, the first-hand account of Mary as it was spoken. And that is that when Gabriel came and said to Mary, it was out of Mary's own mouth that she's saying, this is what Gabriel said to me. And this is what he said to Elizabeth, my cousin, who was that many years older than I was at that time. And this is how it happened and came down. And this is how I responded to, G, to, to, to Gabriel and that whole thing. That was Mary's first-hand uh, uh, account of the whole thing. And as many eyewitnesses as Luke could find, that's who Luke used as his reference in the thing. And so the things were absolutely confirmed. And then finally, number three, the things that have uh, also been confirmed from above. Um, Notice with me again in verse three, it says that it seemed good to me also, 
having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. And if you'll highlight in your mind at least those words from the very first, um, that's actually a very poor translation. The word that's used there, uh, it's the only time that that word is translated from the very first. Every other time that that word uh, in the Greek is used, it's, it, the word is from above that's used. In John chapter 3, when Jesus said that a man must be born from above, and then when he calls himself the Son of Man who is from above, that's the word that he uses. In the book of James, when it talks about every good and perfect gift comes from above, that's the word that he uses there. Every time that word is from above, and thus the, the translation there, it should be that I had a perfect understanding of all things from above. And the idea behind that thing, behind Luke using that phrase, is that he's saying there that heaven itself can bear witness to the truth of the things that I'm testifying and recording here within this gospel. And that is that there's a hint of inspiration behind it, that it isn't just ideas that I've had in my mind or the purporting of a legend. And then he says, and the purpose of those three things the absolute essentials, the absolutely confirmed, and the absolutely inspired, he says in verse 4, he says that you might know the certainty of those things. And that would be absolute assurance to the truth of the word of God. And what this would cost Luke in order to produce this record for you and I is a whole lot of time, a whole lot of toil, and great expense. And he was set forth to do it for the purpose of bringing forth a record that would be reliable concerning the witness and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that important? Why is that important that Luke would uh, would not only do that, but that he would make sure that we know that there's reliability in the record that's here? In Peter's second epistle, in Second Peter, the apostle Peter talks about being an eyewitness of the miracles that Jesus did. And Peter was an eyewitness of the miracles that Jesus did. He was there uh, for most of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And Peter claims the authority of being an eyewitness of those things. But then he says something very interesting at the end of chapter 1 of Second Peter. He says that even though we saw with our eyes the things that Jesus did, and we can testify, and our testimony would hold up because we're eyewitnesses, he says we have a more sure word of prophecy. And that is that the things that are recorded in Scripture are more steadfast than even the testimony of someone who speaks that is an eyewitness. And thus, for you and I to be able to have the assurance that the words that are written in the Bible are absolutely true, for you and I, that is a great value that we have. It's more valuable than if we were to see something with our eyes or to have a sign from heaven above, the testimony of the word of God. And the reason why that's so valuable is because of what it gives to you and me is that it gives us an anchor. It gives us a point of truth that we can attach our lives to and that it will never change and it will keep us grounded uh, within a storm. There are times in our life, and you know this to be true, that knowledge trumps understanding. What that means is that what we know is more important than what we understand. There are times that we don't understand things that God tells us to do. Like when he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And that could be in business, or it could be in marriage, or it could be a partnership of, uh, of other sorts. And there's a point in our life when we don't understand that. We say, well, I don't get it, God. I mean, I love this person, or this person seems honest, and they'd be a good business partner for me. 
And I don't understand why it wouldn't make sense for me to be in a relationship with this person. I don't understand it. But I know what you say. You say, don't do it. And so if I stand upon what you say, because the word of God is going to have the final say in everything that happens in life, I don't have to understand it yet. I can believe what you said because it's an anchor of truth and it will never fail or return void. And so knowledge trumps understanding. And when we understand that, and you and I come to a conviction for ourselves that the word of God is absolutely authoritative in every point of life and that there's not one error in it, Then we can build our lives upon it and we can be certain that when the storm comes, we're not going to be swept away. And so it's important for us to understand the surety of the word of God and it was important for Luke to make sure that the testimony that he gave was absolutely accurate. When you're building your life, you want to build it on something that's going to last. When you're making decisions about salvation, who your God is going to be, decisions about your marriage, who your spouse is going to be and how you're going to build your family, Decisions about how you're going to raise your children and the things that you're going to sow into their lives. The things that you're going to do to make yourself productive and the purpose that God has for you in this world. When you're making those kind of decisions, you want to have an anchor. You don't want to go with the ideas of men or the trends of the day. You want to stand upon God's eternal word of truth. And thus the importance of the surety of the word. And Luke says that you might know the certainty of those things that are known and believed among us. And so Luke gives to us the agenda of the book is to give us a clear and orderly record of Jesus Christ that we might build our lives upon the assurance of the things that are testified. Now, let's get into the text uh, as, as Luke now begins his narrative. As we look now at the announcement of the birth of John uh, the Baptist, and I hope to get through a chunk of this chapter, though we won't get through uh, all of it this, this evening. There's 80 verses in it, um, <laughs> so hopefully we can get through uh, the first half. But he begins in verse 5, and he says this. He says that there was, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. Now pause right there, because you'll notice that Luke does this throughout, and it's a part of his methodology in writing this epistle, is that he wants us to know exactly where we are historically. But by talking about Herod and calling him the king of Judea, he's also letting us know where we are prophetically. And this is significant, and here's why. Because when God, through his servant Jacob, way back in Genesis chapter 49, was speaking of the things that would be out into the future, Jacob prophesied over all 12 of his sons. And one of the prophecies that he gave is that the scepter of rulership would not depart from the tribe of Judah until the Messiah would come. It's Genesis 49, verse 10. He said the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh, or the Messiah, comes on this earth. And that was a prophecy that was understood by them, that Judah would be the lawgiver, and thus the kings all came from Judah, as we've studied. But here it's calling Herod the king of Judea. Herod wasn't a Judean, and he wasn't from the tribe of Judah. He wasn't even an Israelite. Herod was an Edomite. And thus what we have here is the first time since the days of David that the scepter of leadership had departed from Judah, even after the captivity. It was the Judahites that were the rulers. They weren't kings any longer, but they were the governors all the way down until the time that Herod came in and he was declared by Pompey to be the king of the Jews. And this caused a great 
confusion amongst the Jews of that day because they said the scepters departed and they thought they were forsaken by God. Little did they know that that was just a piece of the puzzle. It should have been for them a sign of the times that the Messiah was at hand because that's exactly what was going on. God was now paving the way for the Messiah to come. The scepter departed from Judah because Shiloh was about to come and they should have recognized that. It says that there was a certain priest named Zecharias of the course of Abiah or Abijah. And it says his wife was of the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And so the story begins with this priestly couple of, 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 first of all, Zechariah, and then his wife, also a Levite, a daughter of Aaron, whose name was Elizabeth. Tells us that he was of the course of uh, Abijah. Now, in the days of David, it's First Chronicles chapter 24, because the priesthood was so large, there really wasn't all that much for the priests to do most of the year. What King David did is that he divided all of the priests into 24 segments, or 24 different courses. And each one of those 24 courses would serve for two weeks a year at separate times. So they would serve for a week and then they'd go home and at another point in the year they would come back and serve for another week. And so every course of the priest would serve for two weeks and they would go home. And he was of the eighth course, the course of Abijah. Now, I would say that's a pretty good job, wouldn't you? You work for two weeks a year, and this is my week. i got to go in, and I'm going to serve in the priesthood, and then I'm going to go home, and I'm off for the, the rest of the year. As long as the people paid their tithes, it would work. You know, Sounds like a pretty good deal. You know, They had uh, their other disadvantages, but um, they did that. And so Zechariah, and it says his wife's name was uh, Elizabeth, also of the daughters of Aaron, which was a great honor. And it tells us that they were both righteous before God, Walking in all of the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord, they were blameless. Now, it doesn't say that they were sinless. It says that they were blameless. Meaning that in all good conscience, they were those that were upright before God and they were seeking to keep the testimonies and the precepts of God to the best of their ability and God noticed it. And so he looks at this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, And he sees their faithfulness to them, and God decides that he's going to do something wonderful through their marriage and through their lives and their testimony. It says in verse 7 that that they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both now well stricken in years. Now, barrenness in those days was considered to be a curse. It was a society that leaned heavily upon, first of all, family, but then secondly, on heritage. You'll notice in the Bible that everyone is connected by genealogy. And that was huge for the Jewish culture. And when you would have a son, especially in a family, it meant that God was blessing your family line and that it was going to continue. And so for a couple to not be able to conceive and have a son, it was viewed by the society at large as being a curse upon that couple. Because God was cutting off that line or the name of that husband from among the Israelites. And so barrenness was a huge hindrance to anyone's spirituality or their sense of well-being in that day. Now, here's the amazing thing, is that from heaven's perspective, these two are considered righteous. They're blameless before God. And he sees them and he says, these people are pleasing to me. But from their perspective, they think that they're cursed by God, that God's not interested in their lives, that he's not pleased with them, that he doesn't want their name or their testimony to go on. And now they're well stricken in years, meaning that they're well past the time of life that they can have uh, children at all. What amazes me about this is the difference 
in perception that can exist between earth and heaven. Sometimes we can really think that God has it in for us. That he has no interest in blessing us. That the can, things are never going to work out for us. That God has just forgotten us or he's cursed us in some way. Wherein God can look at us from heaven and he can see that that's completely different than, than, than what we think. That not only has he not cursed us, but he sees us and he says that, that we're well-pleasing to him. And it amazes me that that difference can exist. Here's the other thing that amazes me about this text is the faithfulness of Zechariah and Elizabeth. How many people, when they don't see their dreams realized, check out on God? We're going to see as we go through this chapter that this was a big deal to them. It's going to be brought up three times that she's barren. Here, uh, again in verse 25, and then again in verse 36. And she's actually going to acknowledge that her reproach is taken away. This was a heavy burden for her to be carrying all these years. And yet, even though God didn't do in their lives what they wanted him to do or in the time that he wanted, they didn't back down and say, God, we're not going to serve you. They continued to walk with God even though the things weren't working out the way that they wanted. Well, it says that it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. It's estimated in this day that there were 18,000 priests that served in totality throughout the various courses throughout the year. Now, if you break that down and you divide the 18,000 priests by 24 courses, it gives you 750 priests there around uh, in each one of these courses. So that means for this one week, there would be 750 Levites that would come into Jerusalem for this service. There weren't that many jobs for 750 priests to do. And so what they would do is they would cast lots, and the lot would fall on one priest to go and bring the morning and evening offering before the Lord, the burnt offering. And it would fall on another one to bring the libation or the drink offering. And it would fall on another one to bring the incense, as we see Zechariah is, is doing here. But it really wasn't all that much to do. And they would cast lots, and the chance or the odds that the lot would fall on any one particular priest would be one in 375. And what that means is that most priests in their entire lifetime would never get the opportunity to go into the holy place at all and do one of these things, except perhaps maybe on one of the feast days, because then everyone would be in Jerusalem and all 18,000 priests would serve because of the great influx of the sacrifices. But this was an incredible privilege that Zechariah got to do in this day. And it would only happen if it happened once in a lifetime. And here we see it falling upon Zechariah. And so an exciting time for him to, to be able to go in and burn incense to the Lord. And so he goes in and it says that the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, what, what do you think that was like? Can you imagine I mean, there you are, and like, this is your moment. You finally get to go in, and, and you're going to offer incense. The only time in your life that you get to go and do this privilege, and you walk in, and there's someone standing there. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, man, come on, this was supposed to be my moment, my time. And so he sees an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. That's a common response whenever we see a man seeing an angel or a woman seeing an angel in the Bible. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard, 
And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and you shall call his name John. Thy prayer is heard. Now what prayer is he talking about? The most obvious thought would be that he's talking about the prayer of John and Ze- or I'm sorry, Zechariah and Elizabeth to have a son. But I wonder when was the last time that he prayed that prayer? If you can imagine uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth as a young couple and just thinking about what it would be like to have a family and then realizing after a while that it's not happening and they add intensity to that prayer that, God, if you would just give us a son. And then as Elizabeth would read the testimony of Hannah and the testimony of uh, Sarah in the Old Testament and the testimony of Rebekah who was barren and of the wife of Manoah, the mother of Samson and of Hannah and, and all of these various women throughout history that were barren and reading and claiming the promises of God that he would give to them a child. And as their age advanced more and more and the hope would begin to fade, I'm certain that the prayer intensity would also fade off in that time. What this tells us is that it tells us that the prayers of God, though they are heard, sometimes they are stored and reserved for a time yet in the future that God has in his sovereign plan. It could also be that the prayer of John is concerning the nation. Remember, he's offering incense, and the prayers that he's offering in his ministry there are for the people of God and for God's plan for them and for their future. And here God is about to drop on him a blessing that's going to make his son the one who's going to pave the way for the Messiah to come. And it could be that the angel is saying here, your prayer is heard. God is going to use you and you're going to be an instrument in bringing forth the Messiah into the world because your son is going to be his forerunner uh, in all of this um, thing. But he says uh, that, that, that your prayer is heard and you and your wife are going to have a son, and you're going to call his name John. And you shall have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, this is an amazing thing to me to think about. Because Jesus said of John the Baptist that among those born of woman, there was never a greater than John the Baptist. That he was greater than all of the Old Testament prophets. That makes him greater than Elijah, greater than Elisha, the one who did the most miracles greater than Moses, who was a prophet sent to the nation. And John gets the title of being called the greatest of all of them. But if you look at the life of John, you'll notice he did no miracle. He never raised anyone from the dead. He never called down fire from heaven. He never preached a sermon that's recorded in the Bible that's noteworthy of doing any great thing. He never wrote any kind of a book. or He never did anything, and yet Jesus calls him the greatest of all. Why? Because the very ministry of John was to point people to Jesus Christ and to pave the way for him to come into the world. And I don't know that there is a greater thing that anyone can do than to point the way for Jesus to come into the world. But notice the the reason that he'll be great, that Gabriel goes on to say. It says that he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. And he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. John's greatness will come partially from the fact that he will remain separated from the defilements of humanity. And then it will come also in the fact that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he adds to that in verse 16 that he says, Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him, that is the Messiah, 
in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people that are prepared for the Lord. And that is that John's whole entire ministry is that under the power of the Holy Spirit and in his separation from worldly things, under the influence and authority of Elijah, he will be an influence for righteousness in the nation that the people's hearts might be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. Now, that's an interesting thing for me to think about. The Bible teaches that a lack of righteousness causes a hardness of the heart and a dullness of the hearing. Jesus would say later on in his ministry that because iniquity will abound, the love of many will wax cold. The heart will become cold because of an encroaching darkness and wickedness. Paul later on would also talk about the same thing. He would speak in, uh, the writer of Hebrews would talk about those that are dull of hearing. They become dull of hearing because of sin within their lives. And it's a constant in scripture that when there's a lack of righteousness, there's a hardness of the heart. Now conversely, When there's a righteousness, there's a renewed sensitivity to the things of God. It's just a fact. It's something that exists. You can test that out for yourself, by the way. If you were to just make a declaration in your own mind that you were going to take one month from right now, and you were going to cut off all contact with television or movies or Netflix or any type of uh, influence in that way, and just you were to do that for one month and say, I'm just going to cut myself off from it you would notice in your own experience that there's a tenderness and a sensitivity to spiritual things that comes back to life and resurrects within your mind. And the time that you'll notice it the most is after that month when you go back and you watch something again. And you'll see something that never really bothered you before, but now you look at it and you go, oh my goodness, that's gross. I can't believe anybody would watch that. Or it does something in you and it strikes a nerve the wrong way. And it's true. It happens. When you are turned to righteousness, you find that there's a sensitivity towards the things of God that comes back into your life. And and John is going to be to the people such an influence for righteousness that their hearts are going to be tender so that when the Messiah comes, they're ready and able to receive. And so Zechariah said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? So he asked for a sign. For I am old, and my wife is well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God, and I am sent to speak unto thee and to show you these glad tidings. Now, I read that in just a a reader's tone of voice, but I don't know what Gabriel's tone of voice is when he read that. I think he was probably a little bit annoyed. I mean, here an angel shows up in the holy place, gives a message from God to this priest that's been faithful, and the priest says, could you just show me a sign to prove that what you're saying is going to come to pass? I mean, really, an angel's not enough? Does this happen frequently for you, Zacharias, that you just see Gabriel? You know, this is the second time in all the Bible that Gabriel appears on the scene at all. Hasn't shown up and spoken to the nation in 500 years, and now Gabriel's talking to you and you're going, do you think you could just show me a little something to prove that this is going to happen, you know? Kind of a funny thing that's in us, isn't it? That we seek, we're always looking for something more. Listen, unbelief will always rob you from recognizing the miracle that is happening right now within your life. That's what's happening to John. He's in the middle of a miracle, in the middle of a sign right now, and because he's unbelieving, he can't even see the thing that's going on. How many times does God do things in our lives and we miss out on them 
because we're too busy looking for something else to be happening. So it happens to John, and he gets a soft rebuke, and now he's going to pay for it. Verse 20. He says, and behold, he want a sign? You shall be dumb and not be able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because you believe not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. You're not going to be able to speak about the things that have happened here, and we're also going to see that he's not able to hear either. You're going to be deaf and, and, and mute until the time uh, that these things are fulfilled because of your unbelief. And so the word is delivered, and it says that the people waited for Zechariah, and they marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them, and he per- they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them, and he remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself for five months, saying, The Lord has dealt with me in the days wherein he looked upon me to take away my reproach from among men. There's a beautiful modesty in Elizabeth's receiving here of this blessing. That she doesn't go immediately out and begin to boast and say, you know, with her cane and say, look what God has done for me in my old age as I'm well stricken. She doesn't do that. But she, she, she realizes that God has done something for her that's only been done a handful of times in the history of God's work upon this earth. And she takes five months to just absorb it before the Lord and to give thanks to him for what he has done for her in her life. Why does God do this? I mean, why, did he, why didn't he do it when she was younger or choose someone that was younger? Why would he choose uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah in this time when they're so old? Why do it this way? I mean, what is the plan and, and the wisdom and the strategy of God in this? We read about Abraham and Sarai, and they went through the same thing in, in their life where you know, Abraham was 90 years old and then 100 years old by the time that Sarah conceived. And, and then finally Isaac comes. And then Isaac went through the same thing with Rebekah. For 20 years of their marriage, she was barren. And it wasn't until later on, after intense prayer, that God answered. And Esau and Jacob then um, were, were born. And then it happened with Jacob and Rachel. Rachel was barren. And she waited on the Lord, and finally she said, Give me children or I die. And it wasn't until then that God opened her womb, and then she bore Joseph to Jacob. And then we see it with Samson when he was born, Manoah and his wife, and she was barren, and they sought the Lord, and God finally came through, and Samson was born to him. We saw it with Hannah, who was given Samuel, the the greatest judge that Israel had, the one that anointed David, the first king of Israel, and she was barren uh, long into her life until the time that finally she prayed in such a way that God opened up her womb. And now we see it with this couple here, bearing the reproach of barrenness their whole life. Why, God, do you do it that way? I believe for two reasons. Number one, because sometimes our barrenness shapes and molds our character and our prayers. See, when God just does the things that we're expecting and hoping to, the first time that we pray, or when we expect it to come, oftentimes we take those things for granted. We receive them and we're thankful for them. But we see it as just something that God gives, and, 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 and we can almost take it for granted. We don't give it the kind of value and weight that it's worth. The other thing that we don't do then is that we don't often take care of it. We're not good stewards over the blessing of God. But when you wait for something your whole life, 
And you feel the weight of not having it. And there's a secret longing inside of you. One of the things it says in the Proverbs that is never satisfied is the barren womb, the woman that cannot bear. And when you have to wait for something and you pray so intensely for it, when it finally comes, not only do you appreciate it beyond anyone else that could appreciate something like that, but you pray for it and you take care of it. And in each one of those instances, God had something so great in mind for the people that were born out of those circumstances that he said, this person's going to need a lot of prayer. And what that does for me is this, is it encourages me to pray for my kids. Because how much prayer did God have ready to answer for the life and the ministry of John the Baptist? Or for Isaac, for that matter? Or for Jacob, for that matter? Or for Joseph? Or for Samson? Or for Samuel? How about for us? What plan does God have for you and for me? What does he want to do? Our prayer plays a part in that thing. Well, we'll pause here in our study tonight. But what we're seeing in this section of Scripture is that we're seeing God make ready the world for his intervention and for the coming of his Son in it. And I believe that in the world that we live in today, we're ripe for that very same thing. That we are ripe right now for the intervention of God to do something in this world. If not in our world, at least we know for a fact that God wants to do something within our lives. What we saw tonight are a couple of very practical and very real things that are encouragements or instructions from God to us in a time that we're waiting for him to do something within our life. It's important for you and me that we remain faithful in spite of our disappointments. That's what happened with Zechariah and Elizabeth. They remained faithful to God even though it didn't work out the way that they wanted and God came through in his time. It's also important for you and I to remember to keep a candle burning at the altar of devotions. Think about Zechariah in his old age when it was time for him to go and serve for that week in Jerusalem. How easy would it have been for him to just say, you know what, honey? I want to sit this one out. We go there two weeks every year. We're getting old. The lot never falls on us anyways. We're not at home. We're sleeping in a foreign bed. Why should, why should we bother with going there and doing that again? It seems as though God has forsaken us as a nation. He's forsaken us. As, he doesn't do that. He goes in and he finds that that particular year is the year that God has something for him that would blow his mind. Now, the altar of incense, always in the Bible, speaks of the altar of our devotions and the altar of our prayer. And how often does it happen to us that the temptation comes, you know what, it's just not worth it. I'm just going to hit the snooze bar. I'm going to go back to sleep. I'm not going to pray today. I don't need to read today. I don't need to check in and talk to God about the things going on in my life. We do this every day, and every day it's 15 minutes of reading and 15 minutes of prayer, and we go through the motions, and then we go through our day. Listen, God comes to us in the times that we set aside to meet only with him. And he doesn't waste even one minute of it. And you never know which moment it's going to be that you're going to go and you're going to sit before the Lord and he's going to speak something into your heart or into your life 
or he's going to press something upon your heart that's going to lead your life in a way that God has planned and destined from you from the very beginning that you've had no idea what he's been doing and how he's been leading you or, or shaping your life or your steps. And how important it is that when we wait upon him for his work within our lives or within our world or within our family or within our marriages, that we keep a candle burning at the altar of devotions and that we don't grow weary in well-doing. And then finally, what we see in, in the passage that we read is that our righteousness, that is, our behavior in choosing to do what's right, does make a difference in influencing the lives of others. The angel spoke of John the Baptist and he said that his righteousness and his separation from the things of this world and his filling with the Holy Ghost is going to bring people to a point where he can point and say, behold the Lamb of God. And for you and I that live in a world that has gone so crooked and lost its way and become not even a glimmer of the light that it's supposed to be, the righteousness that you possess and the filling of the Holy Spirit that God desires to give to you means something to someone who's watching your light. And the only contact that they might ever have with the Savior might come as a result of what they see in you. So never grow weary as you wait for the Lord to move in your lives to maintain a filling with the Holy Spirit and a walk in righteousness. We'll pick up next week with the, Gabe, with the angel Gabriel then going to Mary and seeing how he then prepares her uh, for what he's going to do in bringing Jesus into the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you tonight for uh, the testimony of your word. And we ask you, Lord, that as we have looked at the lives of these uh, people that you prepared early on, we pray, Lord, that you would use us as we see their example in their world, that you would use us in ours. And Lord, that we might be those that are faithful and steadfast as we wait upon you. Thank you for their testimony to us tonight. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the truth that you reveal and how you make yourself known to us. So please, Father, send us forth in that same spirit and in that power. And we're asking for that tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.